seasonality is still with us, even if it is a pale, contracted shadow of its former self. In the Christian world, for instance, there is still the midwinter holiday season, in which values and forms of organization do, to a limited degree, reverse themselves. The same media and advertisers who for most of the year peddle rabid consumerist individualism suddenly start announcing that social relations are what's really important and that to give is better than to receive. David Graeber and David Winkler. Welcome back to Everyday Anarchism, the show that finds anarchism, mutual aid, cooperation, and non-domination in your everyday life. I am your host, Graham Colbertson. This week's episode is about Christmas, second Christmas episode in a row, and specifically Christmas in the Twilight Zone. I want to look at Christmas uh, as a time of transformation in which we alter our world to fit the season, as in that opening quote from Graeber and Wingrove. And the season in this case is the cold the dark, the time when fellowship is needed. So we rewrite the world to make it all about that fellowship. At least we're supposed to. We don't really. But there's a genre that tells us that we really, really should. I'm going to call that genre the Christmas romance. And my example for this year is going to be season two, episode 11 of The Twilight Zone, The Night of the Meek. But before I get to the Twilight Zone, I do want to talk about genre for a while. I put romance in the title of this episode, and I'm going to spend a decent chunk of this episode explaining what I mean by Christmas romance. And I'm going to use Shakespeare to give us the genre terminology. So here's a very famous quote from Shakespeare's Hamlet. Polonius, one of the great Shakespearean blowhards. He gives lots of advice. I'll let you decide if it's good advice or not. Is telling Hamlet how great these this group of actors, these players are. Here's Polonius. The best actors in the world, either for tragedy, comedy, history, pastoral, pastoral comical, historical pastoral, tragical historical, tragical comical, historical pastoral, scene individable, or poem unlimited. Did you you catch all those genres? That was a lot of genres. Thanks, Polonius. This line gets lots of intention in part because it's an example of breaking the fourth wall. If you don't know what that term means, you can think when actors are on a stage, they're surrounded by four walls. Three of them are are real walls, or at least you can't see through them. The one behind them to the left and right. In front of them is a fourth wall, an imaginary wall between them and the audience. And so breaking the fourth wall is when the uh, someone on stage talks to the audience. And sometimes the characters actually do directly talk to the audience in Shakespeare about themselves or about the play. This isn't quite there, but Polonius is saying, hey, Here's all the different kinds of plays that can be written. So when people study Shakespeare, they write about this line a lot. Because here's Shakespeare talking about genre. In a lot of ways, the genres that Polonius is talking about are still familiar to us. He talks about tragedy, comedy. He says history. We would say period piece. The histories are mostly about uh, the monarchs of England, and we still do this. If you think about The Crown on Netflix or... The King's Speech or Wolf Hall, these these period pieces are still (laughs) seem to be mostly about kings or, in America, presidents. Think about um, the Steven Spielberg film Lincoln. That would be a classic Shakespearean history play. But as Polonius goes on, it starts to break down. Tragical, comical, historical, pastoral. Something that's uh, a tragedy, a comedy, historical, and takes place in the countryside. Pastoral. That seems to be mostly a joke, although I'm going to argue that um, 
one of Shakespeare's most famous plays, uh, The Winter's Tale, really is uh, at, at least tragical, comical, pastoral. There's a genre that over the past couple of hundred years has gotten a lot of attention that's not on this list, and that is romance, the subject of today's episode. But before I can explain what Shakespeare scholars mean when they say romance, I want to tell you what Shakespeare scholars mean when they say comedy and tragedy. I know this will be a huge rehash for some of you. They definitely, in America, they cover this in 11th or 12th grade English. It seems to me entirely possible that maybe you were not fully paying attention in 11th or 12th grade English. Maybe you just didn't care. That that seems to me fair. I, I know I taught this a few times, and I know not everyone was paying attention. So I'm going to do it, and I'm going to try and make it um, not like a boring high school English class. Although if it is like a boring high school English class, well, that was my job, so sorry. Comedy and tragedy, or we would now usually say comedy and drama, are often delineated as these like two genres of the Western world going back to the Greek. So now we have the masks, the laughing mask, and the crying mask that you see outside of every theater. It's really way more complicated than that, and I don't think I can do a good job of explaining comedy and tragedy. But I can explain briefly comedy and tragedy in Shakespeare. Because I find it really interesting because it's actually hard to tell the difference between comedy and tragedy in Shakespeare. It's not like the difference between comedy and drama today. It's not that one of them has jokes and is silly while the other one deals with really strong emotions. In Shakespeare, all the plays, pretty much all of them, deal with really strong emotions. And pretty much all the plays have lots of ridiculous jokes. One of Shakespeare's plays, King Lear, was so tragic that it didn't get performed in its original form for like a century. But it's still filled with all sorts of ridiculous jokes and tons of comic moments and puns and people falling down. We're not talking about tragedy being filled with strong emotions versus comedy being lighthearted and silly. The only difference is the ending. In a Shakespearean tragedy, pretty much everybody dies at the end. I mean, not everybody, but we're talking a big body count. In a Shakespearean comedy, there's a marriage at the end. That's the difference. Do people die or do people get married? Along the way, things are not that different. Let me give you an example. You may have heard this plot. There are these powerful, noble families in an Italian city. Two young people from different families get engaged. There's a masked ball. There's mistaken identity. There's all sorts of scheming in the background. Eventually, lies and deception make the two young people suspicious of one another. A friar tries to help the young people, even as duels are swirling around them. Eventually, someone decides that the solution to the whole mess is for the young woman to fake her own death. Now, if you've read Romeo and Juliet, or seen the movie Romeo plus Juliet, or seen West Side Story, you're probably thinking that this is Romeo and Juliet. But it's not Romeo and Juliet. It's not yet Romeo and Juliet. Everything I just described happens in Romeo and Juliet, but it also happens in another play by Shakespeare. So after the fake suicide plot is hatched, I could say it all gets worked out. No one dies in a duel. Lots of people get married. The families are united and the bad guy gets punished. That's a comedy. And in that case, I'm talking about much ado about nothing. But if the other thing happens, murder, suicide, duels, death, that's the tragedy. That's Romeo and Juliet. The plots are the same. The setting is the same. There's jokes and threats in both of them. The only difference is the ending. 
And in particular, the question is, does the social order, which is fraying, fall apart or is it put back together again? Is the world maintained? That's a comedy. Or is the world rent asunder? That's a tragedy for Shakespeare. But looked at it from this way, it seems to me that there's some huge ramifications for Shakespearean comedy and tragedy that I don't really like. One of them is that nothing that happens in the play, none of the choices that the characters make actually matter. I've mentioned King Lear already, how devastating it is. And if timing had gone a little differently in that play, if there had been a few fewer or a few more coincidences, that tragedy wouldn't have happened. You've already seen that if a few things had gone differently, Romeo and Juliet don't die. Claudio and Hero do not die in Much Ado About Nothing. And in fact, you know this before the play starts. You know Claudio and Hero are going to get married because when you go to the Globe Theater, someone says, and now you're watching a new comedy performed by the Lord Chamberlain's men. But if they say, now you're watching a new tragedy performed by the Lord Chamberlain's men, then you know they're going to die. Which, considering that Shakespeare's plays are, you know, the foundation of Western culture or whatever, this seems to me that nihilism lies at the heart of Western culture. It's just a fluke whether you live or die. It's determined ahead of time whether this is going to have a happy ending or a sad ending. The genre, the shape of the story, the circumstances, chance, fate, whatever you want to call it, has much more power than human decision-making. That does suggest to me, actually, that if, if that's the way we think of the world around us, then all of life is meaningless. It also suggests that things are <laughs> incredibly shallow. Remember, I started this by quoting Polonius in Hamlet, listing all of those different genres. And, and it gets difficult for Polonius, tragical, comical, historical, pastoral. But that sort of complexity doesn't exist in most of Shakespeare's plays, and I guess in most works of art we encounter. I've got a spoiler for you. For the next mystery novel you're going to read, they are going to catch the killer. And if they don't catch the killer, people are going to get mad and say it's not a mystery novel. The genre determination renders the work shallow, renders it irrelevant, insofar as it seems to determine not just the ending, but also everything that happens along the way. And Shakespeare, I think, knew this, because later in his career, his plays stopped working this way. He started delving into complexity. For one thing, his writing started getting much more complex. This is one of the key reasons why we don't teach the later plays in high school. It's just a lot harder to read the language. The sentences are amazing, but they do not roll off the tongue. And if you're trying to get 16-year-olds to understand Shakespeare, you do not want those sentences. I, I wrote some examples, but I decided they weren't important, so I'm gonna I'm gonna move on to the other thing. The plots get much more complex, and especially the resolution of the plots isn't so easy. It's no longer marriage and everything is fine, or death and everything is terrible. It's something in between. That's why they're sometimes called tragic comedies. You get a happy ending at the end, but it's an ending that is suffused with loss. It's it's bittersweet. Things aren't perfect, and the people who experience the plot have been changed by the end of it. And another word for these tragic comedies that's been used since the 19th century to describe a few of these plays is romance. I'm sure I will talk about romantic literature a lot as this show goes on, but for now I just want to talk about romance in the Shakespearean context. 
For one thing, it does mean, as I've already said, a, a tragic comedy. It's a happy but a bittersweet ending. But it's more than that. The Shakespearean romances deal in, in magic and mysticism, as many of his plays do. But it's more than that. Two more things. One, the, the magical element is in some ways transformative, and crucially, it's in some ways redemptive. And second, and this is the final element of the romances, there's some deeper meaning in the universe that is revealed by this magic. And this suggests that the choices humans make do matter, that the world is not simple, nor is it meaningless. The choices people make and the magic of the universe interact to make meaning in the world. So that's a Shakespearean romance. Things end happily. Maybe they seem to end even completely happily, but along the way, there is real suffering and pain. There's magic, a fairy tale element. There's a transcendence of the everyday world. That transcendence of the everyday world transforms both the world and the people in the story, and yet not in such a way that it is easy. It is redemptive, it is transformative, but it does not eliminate what went before. So let me give you some examples of this using the three genres I've laid out, the comedy, the tragedy, and the romance, um, and three different Shakespearean plays. In Much Ado About Nothing, that's the one with Claudio and Hero, Claudio becomes jealous and believes Hero isn't being faithful to him. I don't remember exactly what happens. It doesn't really matter. Hero and Claudio are both super boring, etc., etc. They get married. Yay. In Othello, Othello becomes jealous and believes that Desdemona isn't being faithful to him. I do remember what happens. I'm not going to recount it here, but let's just say everyone dies. That's comedy. That's tragedy. In The Winter's Tale, which is that tragical, comical, pastoral play I've been talking about, Leontes becomes jealous and believes that Hermione isn't being faithful to him. Their son dies of heartbreak over the false accusation. And among all these other things happening, Hermione is transformed into a statue. In the final scene of the play, Leontes sees the statue, repents, and Hermione is re-transformed into a human and rejoins him. Also, there's a wedding, but their son is still dead, and it is 16 years later. It is a happy ending, sure, compared to Othello. But it's not a happy ending like Much Ado About Nothing. And the ending for me means so much more than the endings in either the tragedy or the comedy. It doesn't feel predetermined. It doesn't feel nihilistic. It doesn't feel easy. So, offered up to you my theory of Christmas movies. The great Christmas movies are romances. Christmas is about redemption and transformation. That's key to one element of Christianity, this redemption and transformation. But the Christmas movies also recognize the tragedy of the world, the absurdity, the despair that it is so easy to feel. Christmas is now a solstice holiday, and so it fits right in. It's the darkest, longest night of the year. That's when we feel the despair, and that's why the hope is so much more hard won. I think that's why Easter, which is so much more important than Christmas in the traditional Christian thinking, has fallen so far behind Christmas in our imagination. Not just because, okay, part of it is that it's so much easier to commercialize and materialize Christmas. That's part of it. But because in Easter, the, the redemption and transformation happens on this enormous cosmic scale. It's the entire universe being transformed. And in some ways, it's just sort of 
the end. There are bunnies and everyone is happy and also some people go to hell. In the Christmas story, and especially in the Christmas romance, which I'm going to argue started in the 19th century, this redemption happens uh, in a single human heart. But from there it spreads and transforms an entire community. And this is what makes the Christmas romances so anarchist for me. They are a story of an individual, and yet also they're animated by a spirit of communion, belonging togetherness that brings everyone together. But it does it voluntarily. Scrooge has to be convinced individually of the value of community. He cannot be guilted into it. You cannot tell Scrooge, this is what you owe the poor. That doesn't work. You cannot force someone to feel the Christmas spirit. But in the Christmas romances, magic reveals the value of the Christmas spirit. Magic is transformative. Sometimes it's secular magic. It's just fraternal goodwill. So often it is actually magical. It's a fairy tale calling back to the romances of the medieval period. Ghosts and spirits and angels. That's the magical part of so many of these great Christmas romances. And obviously by now, I think you can tell the first one is A Christmas Carol. It seems to me that it created the definition of this Christmas romance, which I've been using. And it did, in fact, I think Dickens borrowed it from Shakespeare. We've got tragedy, we've got suffering, we've got losses that can never be made up. But we've got a happy ending, as happy as it can be, Tiny Tim, who did not die. And the happy ending came because magic intervened and showed an individual the value of community and belonging. There's our Christmas romance. Here's another big thing that we get from Dickens in the Christmas romance is the Christmas story since the 19th century has been a critique of capitalism, even as Christmas is being swallowed up by capitalism. That's the Christmas romance. It's basically just a Shakespearean romance, except the transformative magic is Christmas, and the enemy is not sexual jealousy, like it usually is in Shakespeare, but capitalism. Let me try this out real quick on a couple of famous texts. It's a Wonderful Life. That is absolutely a Christmas romance. If you haven't seen It's a Wonderful Life and you just have a vague sense that it's this happy Christmas movie with an angel and Christmas and happiness, uh, I recommend you check the movie out. It is a dark, dark movie. It has lost dreams, suicide, war, all sorts of losses suffered that can never be made up. The villain is, yes, of course, capitalism, a banker. This is a movie in which Scrooge does not get redeemed. The movie ends well, at least as well as it can under the circumstances, through the magical intervention of the spirit of Christmas in the heart of one person. It seems to me that if you think of the best and most beloved Christmas stories, well, besides It's a Wonderful Life and A Christmas Carol, think for a second, I think you're going to find they are Christmas romances. Let me give you some examples, though, of things that are not Christmas romances. First of all, obviously, Die Hard. As you know, the internet loves to get into arguments about whether or not Die Hard is a Christmas movie. These arguments are stupid because no one is defining their terms. Everyone defines a Christmas movie differently, shows that Die Hard does or does not fit into that genre, and then they yell at each other on Twitter. That's pretty much what the internet does. Now, it seems to me pretty obvious that Die Hard is a Christmas movie in the sense that it takes place at Christmas and has Christmas music and Christmas decorations, but it is not a Christmas romance. Even though the movie seems to be about the problems of capitalism, there's not really a sense that capitalism is being challenged or questioned. There's a romantic couple at the center, and they do not experience any sort of transformative understanding. Violence solves everything. 
and then I guess things just go back to normal at the end. No transformation, no magic, no critique of capitalism, no new spirit of community, no Christmas romance for Die Hard. Now, when you say the phrase Christmas romance, you're probably conjuring another kind of movie. Yes, Hallmark Christmas movies. I think they fail the Christmas romance test on every level. First of all, there is no critique of capitalism. These movies love capitalism. They love stuff. They love materialism. I think there's some vague critique of big city lawyers, but people move to the small town and they live in the nicest, biggest, most ridiculous houses that are decorated by Crate and Barrel. There's no sense of capitalistic critique. There is also no stakes. There's no potential for tragedy. There's nothing bittersweet. There's nothing that needs to be overcome. Again, the movie sort of pretends that there's a Scrooge-like figure in the center of this movie. It's usually a woman who's too busy working to appreciate the hunky lumberjack in her hometown. But that is bullshit. There is no transformation. There is only a pseudo-transformation. There is love, but love without loss, love without tragedy. It has only the surface appearance of a transformation. Those people do not need Christmas to redeem their world. I want to spend a little bit more time talking about this transformation because I'm drawing this idea from the work of Stanley Cavell, uh, who is a philosopher who wrote a lot about Hollywood movies and their connection to these ideas in Shakespeare. Cavell writes about um, this genre of Hollywood movies that he calls the remarriage comedy in 30s Hollywood, which he says is an updating of the Shakespearean comedy. And he says, crucially, the thing that distinguishes a true remarriage comedy from a pseudo remarriage comedy is that the transformation is real. This is also, you can see, the difference for me between a Christmas romance and a hallmark Christmas romantic comedy. Here's Cavell. The remarriage comedy genre would begin with Noel Coward's Private Lives, a work patently depicting the divorce and remarrying of a rich and sophisticated pair who speak intelligently and who infuriate and appreciate one another more than anyone else. But their witty, sentimental, violent exchanges get nowhere. Their makings up never add up to forgiving one another, and they have come from nowhere. They are forever stuck in an orbit around the foci of desire and contempt. This is a fairly familiar perception of what marriage is. The conversation of what I call the genre of remarriage is, judging from the films I take to define it, of a sort that leads to acknowledgement, to the reconciliation of a genuine forgiveness, a reconciliation so profound as to require the metamorphosis of death and revival, the achievement of a new perspective on existence, a perspective that presents itself as a place one removed from the city of confusion and divorce. That's what I'm trying to get at in this idea not a happy ending that involves Christmas, but a new perspective, a place one removed from the struggle of everyday life. The only difference here is that the remarriage comedy wants to show the marriage as a place of forgiveness, transformation, and reconciliation, and it happens within the relationship of these individuals. The Christmas romance wants something bigger, it wants to use Christmas to transform the relationships of industrial capitalism and the suffering caused by the lack of understanding between owners, workers, and consumers. So with that out of the way, let's talk about this year's Christmas romance, The Twilight Zone. So The Twilight Zone, if you do not know, is this show that ran from 1959 to 1964, and it dealt 
with some of the biggest and most important political, social, and economic issues of the 60s. But it did it through science fiction. Rod Serling, before The Twilight Zone, wrote about the problems of the contemporary world, and the TV people kept watering it down. He tried to write a story about Emmett Till, and the executives changed almost everything about it. If you want to know more about this, by the way, there's an amazing graphic novel biography of Serling called Twilight Man. It'll tell you the whole story. And it does so in the form of a Twilight Zone episode, which is awesome. So Serling was really frustrated, and he couldn't tell the stories he wanted to tell. So finally he got this idea, and he said, oh, you know what? I'm going to stop telling serious stories about capitalism and racism. I'm just going to tell science fiction stories about aliens and monsters. Science fiction is fun. It's for kids. There's no real issues. There's no civil rights movement in science fiction. Hey, studio executives, will you let me do this fun series of stories? Now, obviously, we know that this is bullshit. Science fiction is one of the easiest places to talk about social justice. Everything from Plato's to the Republic to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein are fictional things that deal with how the world should be. Allegory, satire, that is where so many of the most important points about the modern world has been made. But if you're Rod Serling, you can say, what do you mean? This isn't about racism. This isn't even set on Earth. And they bought it. The studio executives bought it, literally. They let him make The Twilight Zone. And they gave him a decent amount of money to make it. The show, I have to say, it looks beautiful. It was shot on film. Each episode looks like a classic black and white Hollywood movie that happens to be only 30 minutes long. If you've never watched The Twilight Zone, by all means, you are in for a treat. Having done that introduction, let's get to The Night of the Meek, Season 2, Episode 11. Remember the requirements for a Christmas romance? There has to be a tragic backdrop. The world is not a good place. Suffering abounds, and that suffering is caused by capitalism. There has to be some sort of transformation. It has to be a transformation of the heart of a character, usually brought about by magic. But once the character's heart grows a few sizes, that character's transformation becomes a larger community transformation. And the result is a happy ending but not an easy happy ending in which the suffering of the past has been ignored or eliminated. There is a new world. It is going to be better, but it is still in the shadow of the bad world, and the project isn't over. So, first, (laughs) the world is full of suffering. I've got great news for you. If you are watching this episode for the first time, this episode is full of suffering. Honestly, it's wonderful. It looks like garbage. The Twilight Zone has just beautiful cinematography. Every frame could be in a museum, except they tried to save money, and they filmed six episodes on crummy 1960s videotape. Those episodes look terrible, and that's bad. But not this one. This episode is about how terrible the world is. This episode is about what the world looks like if you are drunk and miserable. And it looks like someone got drunk and miserable when they were filming it. The opening scene is this capitalist paradise. There's a bustling, happy department store ready for Christmas. But there's one problem. There is no Santa. Everybody's ready to buy lots of shit, but they can't because there's no Santa. 
And there's this classic mild-mannered boss who just has no soul and just can't understand why Santa wouldn't be here. And we cut to Santa. And Santa looks as bad as the video quality of this movie. His outfit is dirty, and it looks even worse because of the shitty video. His fake beard is terrible. He is getting drunk in a tiny, empty bar. He has bought a sandwich, and it looks like he has taken maybe one bite from it. When the bartender turns his back, Santa tries to steal more whiskey. Santa is dirty. Santa is drunk. And Santa Claus has some complaints. Our Santa is named Henry Corwin, and he has a critique, and his critique of the world is that there is no Santa. In this respect, Henry is the anti-Scrooge. Scrooge has been taken over by the ideology of capitalism. Henry Corwin knows that it's crap. Scrooge doesn't see the point of Christmas. Henry sees the point of Christmas. He doesn't see the point of capitalism, and he cannot understand why you even bother having Christmas. It's just more suffering. Henry sees some kids outside the bar and they're so happy to see Santa. And he takes a drink and then he turns and he delivers a speech to the bartender. We are looking through the bartender's eyes. So Henry is looking right at us. His face fills the screen. Drunk, dirty, slurring. And he says, why do you suppose there isn't really a Santa Claus? Why isn't there a real Santa Claus for kids like that? The bartender thinks he's crazy. Why would you expect something good to come in this universe? But Henry Corwin knows that that's the idea behind Christmas. That there is something better than capitalism. But he's Santa, so he knows there's nothing better. There is a real Santa in this show, but he is an unemployed drunk who cannot help the kids in the poor neighborhood, but is supposed to go be nice to the rich kids in the department store. This Santa is basically homeless, and he is being imported to make the rich people feel good about capitalism. This is a big twist for the Twilight Zone. The Twilight Zone specializes in the uncanny, or unheimlich. That's what Freud uses it in German. Unheimlich meaning Unhome-like. The uncanny is that thing that feels almost real, but is really weird. Everything is normal in the Twilight Zone, except something is off. And the fact that it's normal but not quite right is what makes Twilight Zone so scary. This is Freud's insight. It's not really scary to see a spider or a snake in your dream. What's scary is to see a spider or a snake that also reminds you of the person you love the most in the world. You are home, and yet you are not home at the same time. And that's how the Twilight Zone gets you. You're in a regular American neighborhood, except it's not a regular American neighborhood at the same time. And it forces you to see the American neighborhood in this new, uncanny way. But there's nothing uncanny about this one. There's no magic. There's no aliens. There just isn't a Santa, which is the real world that we live in. We're not on another planet. We're not in hell. We just have an unemployed guy who hates his job. His boss is a dick. He drinks so he doesn't have to think about how bad the world is, and he doesn't understand why he's surrounded by starving children. 
This is not a distorted vision of the world that has been made uncanny. This is just our world. Rod Serling has dropped the science fiction part. This is just what 20th century America looks like. It is capitalism, it is suffering, and Christmas is a cruel joke played on poor children. When Corwin finally does show up to work, he offends a woman by being drunk. He doesn't do anything. He just is drunk. And his boss yells at him. The boss, I think, maybe is the guy who plays a piglet in, in the Winnie the Pooh stories. At least he, he sounds like he has the same voice. And, and Corwin gives this amazing, amazing speech about what Christmas should mean. I can either drink or I can weep. And drinking is so much more subtle. But as for my insubordination, I was not rude to that woman. Someone should remind her that Christmas is more than barging up and down department store aisles and pushing people out of the way. Someone has to tell her that Christmas is another thing finer than that. Richer, finer, truer, and it should come with patience, love, charity, compassion. That's what I would have told her if you had given me the chance. I don't know how to tell you. I don't know. All I know is that I'm an aging, purposeless relic of another time, and I live in a dirty rooming house on a street filled with hungry kids and shabby people where the only thing that comes down the chimney on Christmas Eve is more poverty. Do you know another reason why I drink, Mr. Dundee? So that when I walk down the tenements, I can really think it's the North Pole and the children are elves and that I'm really Santa Claus bringing a bag of wondrous gifts for all of them. I just wish, Mr. Dundee, on one Christmas, only one, that I could see some of the hopeless ones and the dreamless ones. Just on one Christmas, I'd like to see the meek inherit the earth. And that's why I drink, Mr. Dundee. And that's why I weep. So there it is. And I would say this 60-year-old critique of capitalism is as relevant as it ever was. The chronic unemployed have been tossed aside, and the poor kids are only going to get more poverty. And the real problem is the hypocrisy. This goes back to the idea of Christians versus people who actually follow Christ. The real problem with Christmas is that it's a lie. Santa Claus is fake. It's not a better time of the year. Or it's only a better time of the year for the people who can afford to make it a better time of the year who are the people who don't need Christmas. The only thing that comes down the chimney is more poverty. This is the founding realization of socialism, that a society that creates enough for everyone, but then doesn't give it to most people, is monstrous. That would be bad enough, but then they have a holiday that pretends that everyone has enough and the world is about giving and joy, but it only extends to the wealthy. Now that will make you drink some whiskey with drunk, semi-homeless Santa Claus. Before I get to the transformation, which is coming, because I said this was a Christmas romance, I want to tie this into anarchism one more time. If you've watched the episode, you know that Corwin finds this bag filled with trash, and then it turns out that the bag of trash is a real Santa bag, and it gives everyone what they need. And we see him giving that stuff out in a room that's being presided over by a church lady. You, you may not be familiar with these places, these missions. They're not as common anymore. The basic premise is that it's a place where religious do-gooders go and help the poor, but it is authoritarian. They provide services, especially food, but to get the food, you have to listen to sermons and songs. It is transactional. The Christians aren't there to help. They're there to make sure that you believe the same things that they do and that you don't get rebellious. I'm going to take you to uh, Jack London, who wrote... Uh, probably the most important critique of these things in his book called People of the Abyss, which was also the book that sent George Orwell down on his journey into socialism and anarchism. Here's London. 
These people who try to help, their college settlements, missions, charities, and whatnot are failures. In the nature of things, they cannot but be failures. They are wrongly, though sincerely, conceived. They approach life through a misunderstanding of life, these good folk. They do not understand the West End, yet they come down to the East End as teachers and savants. They do not understand the simple sociology of Christ, yet they come to the miserable and the despised with the pomp of social redeemers. They have worked faithfully, but beyond leaving an infinitesimal fraction of misery and collecting a certain amount of data, which might otherwise have been more scientifically and less expensively collected, they have achieved nothing. As someone has said, they do everything for the poor except get off their backs. The very money they dribble out in their child schemes has been wrung from the poor. They come from a race of successful and predatory bipeds who stand between the worker and his wages. Then they try to tell the worker what he shall do with the pitiful balance left to him. Of what use in the name of God is it to establish nurseries for women workers, in which, for instance, a child is taken while the mother makes violets in Islington at three farthings a gross, when more children and violet makers than they can cope with are being born right along. The violet maker handles each flower four times, 576 handlings for three farthings, and in the day she handles the flowers 6,912 times for a wage of nine pence. She is being robbed. Somebody is on her back, and a yearning for the beautiful and true and good will not lighten her burden. They do nothing for her, these dabblers, and what they do not do for the mother undoes at night when the child comes home all that they have done for the child in the day. And this mission worker in the Twilight Zone is definitely not getting off the backs of the poor man in the mission house. In fact, when Henry comes to the mission with the magic bag and gives everyone stuff, the mission worker becomes very, very upset. She is not there to fight poverty. If she were there to fight poverty, she would be happy that one of the old men got a sweater and another one got a cane. She is there to maintain the social order. And when the presents start getting handed out, she calls the cops. And when the cop shows up and arrests Corwin, he calls Corwin's boss. So now we've got the anti-anarchist holy trinity. Church, state, boss. The triumvirate taking our freedoms and telling us they're helping us. A mission worker, a police officer, a boss. And this is where anarchism wildly diverges from so many other left-wing philosophies they know what they need. When they get a hold of that bag, they don't ask for gold. They don't ask for diamonds. They just ask for the basic stuff. The only person who asks for anything fancy is the boss, and he gets cherry brandy of a good year. The church, the state, and the boss are always telling us that they know what we need and that poor people can't be trusted. But the poor people in the mission just ask for a pipe and a sweater and a cane. They know what they need. All right, maybe I didn't quite mean to, but now I've brought the gifts in, so I've brought the transformation. Part two of the Christmas romance is magic. The universe is altered, and this one is pretty simple. Corwin finds a bag, and the bag magically has presents in it. And if that's not magical enough for you, Corwin later meets an elf and becomes the actual Santa. Now that is a transformation of the entire universe. But there's something wrong here with my Christmas romance definition as it applies to this episode. There isn't actually a transformation of Corwin's heart. That's different from the other Christmas romances. That's different from The Grinch. It's different from George Bailey. It's different from Scrooge. It's different from the Shakespearean romances. It's different from the remarriage comedies that Cavell talks about. 
Corwin doesn't undergo a conversion. He's always believed in Santa Claus. And when he becomes Santa Claus, well, he was already wearing the Santa suit. Corwin doesn't change. It's the rest of the universe that changes around him. And in that respect, this episode totally breaks the mold of the Christmas romance. Now we've got to deal with the ending. In the Christmas romance, the ending is happy and yet bittersweet. But Serling has broken the rules for the Christmas romance, and he has broken the rules for the Twilight Zone. I mentioned in one of my newsletters that there's a joke that Futurama makes about the Twilight Zone. The ending is always, turns out it's man. The true monster is humanity. Humans are the aliens, or the aliens are humans. I'm not going to spoil any of the episodes, but this is the joke. The uncanny disappears at the end of the Twilight Zone, and it's just home. This scary, creepy thing is the real world. This doesn't reveal that the Twilight Zone is just our world, exactly like our world. In this universe, something has gone terribly wrong from our world, and the anarcho-communist ideals of Christmas actually come true. And those ideas came so true that even the boss and the cop are going to go home and enjoy some mutual aid over their fancy brandy and stop oppressing people and not be punished by the poor. I mean, it's so anarcho-inclusive. The oppressors aren't punished. They're rewarded. Because in this system, everyone is rewarded. The meek don't guillotine anyone. Everyone gets what they want. Actually, Stanley Cavell, the philosopher of the remarriage comedy, has a quote that says, this is how a true romance is supposed to work. Here's Cavell. This is a vision of community, utopian, no doubt. The meaning of the vision is not so much that organization requires hope, which requires vision, as it is that happiness is not to be won just by opposing those in power, but only beyond that by educating them or their successors. Put otherwise, The achievement of human happiness requires not the perennial and fuller satisfaction of our needs as they stand, but the examination and transformation of those needs. No one would say that it is applicable in all human contexts. It applies only in contexts in which there is satisfaction enough. Something beyond the bare necessities is an issue. This is why in this episode, the bosses can even have a happy ending and can talk about miracles, because now everyone has enough, and human happiness can be about something beyond simply having that coat and cane. Now, back to that ending. Here's what's so weird about all this. Santa Claus is real, and then Serling comes in in the closing speech, and he says this, A word to the wise, to all the children of the 20th century, whether their concern be pediatrics or geriatrics, whether they crawl on hands and knees and wear diapers or walk with a cane and comb their beards. There's a wondrous magic to Christmas, and there's a special power reserved for little people. In short, there's nothing mightier than the meek. And a Merry Christmas to each and all. This makes the ending an absolute tragedy. There's a violation of the Christmas romance rules and the Twilight Zone rules. The world at hand is completely transformed. It's not bittersweet. Everything is good. 
So that's not a Christmas romance. And this isn't the Twilight Zone either, because this world is not our world. Here I think Serling is borrowing something from the anarchist playwright Bertolt Brecht. Brecht's plays often have pretty unhappy endings, because his goal is to get the audience involved. They should change the world, should take ownership of the world outside of the play. Things end badly in Brecht's play so that you know that you need to go out and change the world. That's what Brecht does, and that's what Serling is doing here. In this case, it's the opposite. Things end well in Henry Corwin's world, but it's not our world. And that's why when Serling gives us this speech that there's nothing mightier than the meek, he might as well be screaming at us, go out there, educate, agitate, organize. You have the power. That's what Christmas means. In this fantasy world, magic is going to do the job. But in our world, Henry Corwin isn't going to become the real Santa Claus. It's going to be organization. It's going to be direct action. It's going to be nonviolent resistance. It's going to be anarchism. That's what Serling is saying. And that is the true spirit of Christmas. That's all for this episode. Thank you for listening. One last thing. Remember that I I need your help. So much time and energy goes into this show, and I I give it out as a gift. I'm not trying to sell it. I don't put anything behind a paywall. Everything I create is free. But if I'm going to keep making it, I'm going to have to find a way in the long run to pay my bills. So if you can, if this gift is meaningful to you, I would love if you could go to everydayanarchism.com and give money in return. But it's not transactional. This is a gift exchange, and I am going to give whether I receive anything. So I'm just going to keep making the best show I can. And I'm going to keep putting it out there for as long as I can afford to. And if you can give to keep it going, well, I will be so grateful. And if you can't, well, I appreciate you listening anyway. I'm just going to have to let mutual aid take care of the rest. Remember that you can email me questions or comments at everydayanarchismpodcast at gmail.com. Merry Christmas, everyone. Or happy winter solstice or (laughs) happy summer solstice if you're in the southern hemisphere. Happy whatever day it is that you are listening to this show on. I will talk to you soon. The music which you're about to hear is by David Hill. Thanks for the music, David. Love you, man. Merry Christmas.